we're going to start uh, today. We have been in the the Gospel of Mark, and I, I am uh, I, I got to tell you, I do recognize how glacially slow we are going through the Gospel of Mark. I'm not saying I'm going to do anything about it. I'm just saying I recognize that this is, you know, and, and this is one of those times where um, we're really just kind of going at the pace that, that unfolds for us, and um, I am enjoying the things that, that, that are being uh, re- revealed. One of the things that, that's revealed today in, in where we're going to be in, in Mark chapter 4, uh, after, you know, thinking about all the time that I've, I've read the story, I've never actually seen the things that, that I saw um, that we're going to talk about here, and the fact that that is still uh, possible, that that's still true, is just crazy. I love it. Um, but uh, uh, before we get started, why don't we just, why don't we pray real quick over our time together, and then we'll get into the study of the book of Mark. Holy Spirit, Lord, Father, with everything that, that just swirls around us, everything that, that, we, that we encounter, everything that we experience, everything that, that weighs us down, everything that lifts us up, everything, Father, I pray that, that we could become aware of your presence in all of that. So, Father, would you walk us back as far as you would need to walk us back? Show us especially in the times where we weren't aware, where it didn't feel like it. Show us how you were with us. But Father, not just with us, would you show us how you were on the throne of our life and you're actively engaged? Would you show us that that your love and concern for us is so deep that you are active in the things that we're experiencing. And Father, from that place, would you teach us today? From a knowledge that that you care deeply enough about us, that you have been with us in all of these things, that you've done this without our ability to earn it, would you present your word to us? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're studying the book of Mark this winter, and we're looking for the ways that Jesus challenged cultural norms and religion through overt resistance and bold disobedience. In this example, in this example of, of overt resistance and bold disobedience, we find an archetype for defiance. We see an example of living as the expression of God in the age of the church. We actually see how to pull all of this stuff off. This defiance of Jesus challenged his disciples. It challenged the 12 as much as it challenges us today. It sets an example for us today. It sets this example that that, that a growing faith and a growing dependence on him is part of being a follower of Christ, but it also leads us to be resistant to cultural norms and also to religious behavior. Now, we're going to be towards the end of chapter 4 today, uh, looking at the story of, of a storm. And after seeing earlier examples in the Gospel of Mark 
of, of Jesus defying civil authorities, Jesus defying social and cultural norms, defying religion and religious leaders, what we're beginning to see is that there's some structure emerging for us that, that, that sort of shows us the way that Jesus defies. And, and with that structure, it will help us to, to understand how we're called to do the same. This structure continues throughout the Gospel of Mark, and, and this structure, as it sort of builds for us now, gives us this example. The defiance that we see from Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is a defiance that, that leads to sacrifice rather than a defiance that leads to gain. So this really is that, that first piece of, of the structure that's being formed by the, the example that, that Jesus leaves us. We never see Jesus improve his safety. We never see Jesus improve his comfort. We never see him improve his prosperity from, from his defiance. We never see these things. We always see someone compassionately rescued. We see also that Jesus attacks evil. He attacks rituals that, that make void the meaning of, of a relationship with God through repetition rather than relationship. We see him attack ways of treating people that have been normalized by culture. We see all of that. We, all, we see all of that always to beckon someone or some people closer to the throne of God. So what we see, even though there's some breaking, his defiance is not about breaking, it's about unity. Later in the New Testament, we see Paul call the missional work of Jesus the ministry of reconciliation. And this ministry of reconciliation is the foundation of holy defiance. This ministry of reconciliation archetype also gives us a metric for our own structure of defiance as we look for defiance replicated. So we know that then that defiance in support of the mission of God serves others. And in that service to others, it leads to consequences to the defier. Mark really is helpful in this because of, of all the Gospels, we see more clearly in the Gospel of Mark that there is a consequence for living for God's will. What we see is salvation, but we see salvation because of sacrifice. Now, every era of religious history, from the founding of the church forward, I'm probably, I mean, from before the founding of the church, all the way forward to our time now, there's been leaders. And using the term that sort of uh, has taken over in our culture, in our time today, influencers. There have been leaders and influencers that preach a message of defiance, but they preach a message of defiance for gain. It's not a message of unity. It's, it's a message of isolation. It's a message of fear. It's a message of rejection. 
It's a message that is not the example of Christ. It's less about saving the lost and more about separation from, from the lost, keeping the lost separate, keeping the lost lost. It's about keeping them as far away as possible. This modality of defiance is also an instate that sees the defier gain power, gain safety, gain acclaim, gain followers, but isn't about the compassionate rescue that we see from Jesus. It's counterfeit defiance. It's separation, not reconciliation, which means that it's self rather than service. This is the form that we're seeing develop in the defiance that Jesus has demonstrated in the first four chapters of the Gospel of Mark. What Jesus is showing us is that that defiance is an act of sacrifice and an act of service. Service and sacrifice are always about the good of another. When done as Jesus did, it's always for people that not only haven't earned it, but it's for people that don't deserve it. The defiance of Jesus is about extending love. And we're going to see him do this again. We're going to see this defiance. We're going to see him defy in Mark 4 to save his followers, to be an example for them, and to teach them what faith looks like. To present to us the image of God. To present to us the image that we are invited to reflect. And so here we go in Mark chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 35. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up, high waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. And then he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, keeping the theme of defiance, the theme of open resistance and bold disobedience, we see several points of open resistance in this passage. One that's easy to miss is the open resistance to secular notions of how God acts or how the humanity of Jesus might run counter to what we would expect of how God would act or how God would interact with creation. And this really does speak to our very image of God. 
the way he presents himself to us matters. So what we see here is following days of teaching, days of performing miraculous acts of compassionate rescue, days of work, Jesus is exhausted. This is not a minor point to the narrative, but this is also a point to the narrative that I've missed. This this is a mark of intentional defiance of the expectations of religious and secular people. Even if it's just this simple, even if it is just as simple as Jesus is relatable. And you think about the implications that that has on the image of God. Just to make a quick point, how many of you have ever worked and then been exhausted? How many of you are right now exhausted by work? How many of you are exhausted by work and just don't want to raise your hand? Too tired. What we see here is Jesus exhausted by work. Now consider some common ways that people image God and allow that image to be the foundation of how we experience and we relate to God. The point of this defiance is, is captured by something. The, the point of actually like, like pulling this minor piece of the narrative that's not really so minor after all. This is something that, that, that's captured by a quote that I found this week. Uh, tel, uh, Timothy Keller once said, unless we are profoundly certain that God is our loving Father, we will never be able to say, thy will be done. That is an important point. Unless we are profoundly certain that God is our loving Father, we will never be able to say, thy will be done. So the extension of that is that an accurate picture of God is essential to trusting him. It's the best way to gain, or I'm sorry, the best way to gain an accurate picture is then to see God do what God does. Beyond the lessons of faith that can be pulled from this narrative, beyond what we can see from the response of the disciples, all of the stuff that, that maybe typically we would see in, in, in pulling this story out of Scripture, uh, this story captured by Mark is it, key to understanding the identity of God. That fact that, that, that Jesus was exhausted is key to un- understanding the identity of God. An intentional an essential part of his unfolding plan is captured in that, that, that passage that Jesus was exhausted. It's an example of defiance to how we would expect God to act. God, the whole, God is holding all of the power and authority. He created power and authority. Holding all of that, he comes to us in flesh as human to meet us where we are. He makes himself relatable to us. Now, when I kind of pull this out and start thinking about this for myself, 
I think what it reveals is how I'm prone to like a, a reverse reality. Even though I know scripture shows that, that, that we're made in the image of God, I can easily reverse that and either assume or try to, to make God be in my image rather than me be in his. Before I was introduced to Jesus and, and this idea of this overwhelming love of God, I was much more interested in power than compassion. Anybody else ever been more interested in power than compassion? I was much more interested in power. The God that would make sense to me in, in that state, being interested in power, would not be exhausted. The God that made sense to me would be the God that, that, that just wields this oppressive power in order to, to bring opponents to heal. Rather than the one that would step down to feel what the oppressed actually feel. Also, based on my attitudes, my presumptions, my inclinations and biases, I don't know if you're like this, but I can craft an image of God that helps me relate to him. And crafting this image of God also helps me in my talent for sin and selfishness. Now, over the course of the last year, we've talked about faith being a product of, of participating with God. But also, I've shared with you at times that, that, that I've navigated a lot of my life far more interested in God participating with me than being inclined to, present, to, to participate with him. I've asked God to intervene when I need him as a response to discomfort. I've asked him to, to, to intervene uh, as a response to tra tragedy, adversity. But then I don't really have that much interest in God's participation when it comes to things that I want to maintain my control over. I want God to save me from the negative consequences. I want him to bless me with positive consequences. And I, I want him to do all of this on my terms so I can enjoy my life without my sovereignty being encroached upon. That's how I've interacted with God uh, for much of my life. What it means is I want God to be who I want him to be. I want him to be a reflection of me rather than, than him being who he truly is, which means I'm in danger of missing the very point of life. Unfortunately, I think this is representative of our culture. I think the call to, to conform grows louder as generations progress. I think it's louder today than it was yesterday, and I think it's going to be louder tomorrow than it is today. I think even the word diversity has been robbed. I think it's used out of context. I think even the word diversity now is, is actually cloaking a demand to conform to militant demands rather than to be what it truly means as a reflection of a diverse God. What happens with, with this militant uh, approach to conformity masked with the word, with the misuse of the word 
diversity is that these efforts have created a false god. But even more than creating a false god, I think what's happened is that, that it's even created or demonstrates a false common idea of who God truly is. Either a false God or a false image of God. Now, remember, I'm pulling all of that from the part of the story that Jesus was so tired from his ministry that he was asleep. Not only that that he was asleep, he was so fast asleep that the storm and what the storm was doing to the boat didn't even wake him up. The fact that he could get so tired is a defiance of the perspective of how God would choose to interact with his creation. It also shows something about his character that he would make himself so relatable to us. Now, some people's image of God, unfortunately, is an image of a father that can't be bothered. A father that that might be annoyed when his kids make too much noise. Some might, might see God as a wrathful deity that lightning bolts uh, the people that take him off. Unfortunately, I think that's probably how I would be if I was God. Trying to work on that, though. Thank you, sir. (laughs) I think there's others that imagine a God that created and then left the process and left creation to fend for itself created and then just took his hands off the wheel, stepped back and said, good luck with yourself. All of these perspectives, all of them are shattered by the fact that Jesus was fully human. None of those perspectives can stand up under the scrutiny of the fact that Jesus was fully human. Consider Hebrews chapter 2. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. This is the act of a loving father. Scripture stresses the total humanity of Jesus Christ. Although sinless, Christ shared in the general condition of humanity 
This included suffering, death, exhaustion. He did this both as a mechanism of our total salvation, but also a demonstration of, our, of his countercultural love. He chose to save and reconcile with those that have transgressed him. To the point that he took the transgressor's place to pay the price of the transgression. That point alone is defiance of the highest order. Defiance of cultural expectation, defiance of of religious understanding, defiance of, of the chaos that sin creates, Jesus demonstrates his power by becoming powerless. He defies power through sacrifice. Fully human, Jesus demonstrates immense divine power by demonstrating his humanity. And so he's asleep after a long day at work. When we put this alongside that quote from Timothy Keller, we, we move closer to being able to say, your will be done, because we can see the divine power of the Lord Almighty exercised as a mechanism to save us from the storm of sin and selfishness. Jesus, the full human, but also the Lord Almighty all-powerful God. The reflection of this Father that calls us treasure. The identity of God, the way that we image God, all of this informed by how he chose to present himself to us. This becomes a basis for how we ought to present him to others. And this is also defiance when we present him to others in this light. Defiance, that it defies the secular experience of who God truly is. That defiance of Jesus being fully human comes alongside another defiance that together demonstrates the, the totality of the nature and identity of God. Now, some people, you might have experienced this, some people mistake kindness for weakness. You ever been around somebody that, that, that mistakes kindness for weakness? Those that mistake kindness for weakness might also mistake compassion as an expression of some lily-livered submissive weakling. Some mistake compassion as being a sign of being weak. But Jesus, fully human to demonstrate his compassion, is also fully God with the power to command wind and waves. I don't think that what Jesus does next can be compared to a lily-livered submissive weakling. The Sea of Galilee is famous for violent storms. These seem to come out of nowhere. There's a topography and and geography of the area that just makes for 
crazy weather systems. It's almost like there's places in the world that's just, the, the, the weather that can be created there is phenomenal. It, like Yellowstone is, is a place where, where some of the, the, the weather phenomena, phenomenon can only happen in this one place, like water freezing in the air and, and some of the winds that, that, that kind of come out uh, up the Paradise Valley. There's only like this place in the world that creates these, these uh, weather phenomenon. And the Sea of Galilee is one of these storms come up quickly. They're violent and destructive, and then they just disappear. And they come out of nowhere. It's, uh, it, it's just, it, it's one of those places in the world. This storm, though, was significant <coughs> because remember that those in the boat with him, they've been over the Sea of Galilee many times. These are fishermen that know the, the, the sea. They know what this is about. They've been in storms before. This is not something that, that would shock them. Getting out into the Sea of Galilee, for them, they would know that a storm can come quickly and we've got to be prepared for it. But this storm was different because this storm scared them to death. They were terrified. This was not a normal storm in a place known for storms. They had been storms, they had been in storms before, but never like this. They had been in storms enough to know not only was this one different, but this one is going to sink us. There is no way we're making it to the shore. This storm will be the storm that ends us all. They had forgotten or had yet to form the new reality of the one that was in the boat with them. They were not ready to apply what they knew of the identity of God. They were not ready to take their, the, what they knew of God and apply it to their present reality. They weren't ready for that. I know that some of us might be in the same place today. Some of us might have seen storms in the past enough to know that the storm that's gathering is going to be the one to sink us. Some of us have been in storms so long, maybe you don't remember what it was like to be on calm seas. Some of us maybe have been in the storm so long, we don't remember who's in the boat with us. Forgetting how much God has participated with us. Fear replaces our faith. Now remember how we've defined, <coughs> excuse me, faith in the past is the product of participation with God. The product of watching God act, trusting that he will act, trusting that he will act with continuity over time, throughout time. Even though they had seen signs and wonders, the power of the storm overtook their knowledge and the very opposite of faith, the opposite of the product of participating with God, fear and traps their heart. 
they're feeling this impending doom. I'm not sure if you've ever felt impending doom. It is not a positive experience. They're feeling this impending doom, and they wake up Jesus. And Jesus is like one of my daughters, not easy to wake up. And I think in his humanity, um, just as cranky as that daughter when they are woken up, even with their alarm blaring, like, how are you not waking up with your alarm blaring? The storm is raging around him, and it's not waking him up. You're kidding me. He's not even waking up from the storm, shaking him awake. Wakes up kind of grumpy. And then he puts on the full power, a display of the full power and compassion of God. And this part is pretty cool, if you think about this. Speaking the same words that he speaks to evil. The same words that he says to demons that torment the people that are coming to him for compassionate rescue. The same words. He speaks the same words to the wind and the waves. To the storm that's striking fear into the hearts of the people that he loves. The same words. Silence. Be still. He says the same thing to the wind and the waves that he says to the demons and the powers of hell. These words give peace. The storm is done. The sun comes out. These words give peace to the storm of sorrow. You think about the storms of life bringing sorrow. But against the sorrow of life, against the sorrow of chaos, disunity, broken relationships, the death that results from our sin and separation from God, Jesus speaks the words of life that demonstrate the glory of God. Silence. Be still. These words give peace to the storm of doubt, to the storm of tension, to the storm of uncertainty. There are times when we don't know what to do. There's times when we stand at the crossroads of life and we don't know where to go. But the tragedy of those times isn't the tension, the doubt, or the uncertainty. The real tragedy is when we're unable to humbly submit to the Prince of Peace by asking for the direction to take that aligns with his will. To this tension, our submission to Jesus allows us to step under the covering of the words Silence, be still. These words give peace to the storm of anxiety. The biggest enemy to peace, one that permeates our culture, is anxiety. Jesus speaks to our anxiety through his presence with us. Jesus, being fully man, demonstrates that he is fully God. Jesus shows us the image of the Father. 
He shows us the image of a father that calls us treasure. A father that reaches his hand to them, not because they've deserved it and earned it, but because he loves them and wants to be with his kids in his creation. The word silence, be still. These words reach across the expanse of separation with God. They build a bridge to his throne. A bridge that defies the powers of evil, the powers of any storm, and defies the expectations of the secular world as they try to understand what it really means to have a powerful God. Would you pray with me? Father, as we turn back to worship you, we thank you that you know the storms of life. We thank you that you loved us so much that you became like your creation fully to experience what we experience. We thank you that you loved us enough that you relate to us. Father, we also thank you that you love us so much that you speak into the storm. And so, Father, I pray that that now, wherever we might be, whether the sea is calm or the sea is raging, whether the wind is calm or a gale is blowing against us, I pray that into the expanse of our separation from you, we would hear the word silence. Be still. And Father, we pray that that your power would be demonstrated through the compassion that you have for us as you rescue us and pull us from the storm. So Father, we thank you for your defiance. In Jesus' name.